Welcome to Wednesdays with Winnie, the podcast that covers, well, quite a lot, from fallacies and grad parties to Aquinas, Aristotle, friendships, and even Subway cookies. My hope for you is that you can sit back, relax, learn a little, laugh a little, or a lot, and come away with a lot more knowledge. Without further ado, let's get into the episode. and welcome back to another episode of Wednesdays with Winnie. (laughs) This week it's actually a Wednesday, which is good. (laughs) Last week we were a little bit slacking and I'm still not in the recording studio, which I am a little bit sad about, but tomorrow is my appointment where I'll go and I'll get to be familiarized with all the equipment in GCU's podcasting and recording room. So I'm really, really excited about that and looking forward to that a lot. I'm also looking forward to this episode, which is the third and final installment on the abortion series. And this episode, we're going to be kind of talking about some big questions and abortion arguments on the more philosophical and debatable side instead of just facts like the previous two episodes have been. So I'll just get right into it. I think the first big question when it comes to this debate is when does life begin? And this is a question that has defined the abortion debate since Roe v. Wade and even before that. And today I want to answer that question and show you guys how to answer that as well and really equip you to be able to argue the abortion argument in a successful way. So the first thing I want to do is bring you guys some quotes from Princeton and the Biomedical Institute of Embryonology. And these quotes are from famous scientists, and I tried to gather a range of opinions, but these were the most common ones. So the first is a quote from Medical Embryonology. And it is, the development of a human being begins with fertilization, a process by which two highly specialized cells, the spermatozoan from the male and the osseite from the female, unite to give rise to a new organism known as the zygote. And the second quote, almost all higher animals start their lives from a single cell, the fertilized zygote the time of fertilization represents the starting point in the life history or ontogeny of the individual. And this kind of shows that fertilization is when we define human life. Scientists do, as a society we do. This is and has been a crucial point of defining when a human life becomes a human life. And that's not saying that the sperm and egg are not um, alive, but it's saying the point when the two connect is the first and only definable point to say this is a human life. There are other points, but they're much more arbitrary and they're harder to pinpoint and design. And here's another quote that I found very interesting. I'll let you in on a secret. The term pre-embryo has been embraced wholeheartedly by IVF practitioners for reasons that are political and not scientific. The new term is used to provide an illusion that there is something profoundly different between what we non-medical biologists still call a six-day-old embryo and what we and everyone else call a 16-day-old embryo. The term pre-embryo is useful in the political arena where decisions are made about whether to allow early embryo 
now called pre-embryo experimentation, as well as in the confines of a doctor's office, where it can be used to allay moral concerns that might be expressed by IVF patients. Don't worry, a doctor might say, it is only pre-embryos that we are manipulating or freezing. They won't turn into real human embryos until after we've put them back into your body. And that is a misconception people have that an embryo or when an fertilization and conception first happens and a zygote is first formed is not an actual human being and that is not true at all that's why IVF is very immoral and it is not good because it is taking embryos lab created embryos but still a human life and experimenting on them freezing them a lot of them don't even reach adult human life but there's a kind of a misconception about this. If a zygote is a human life, what about the sperm and egg? And I touched on that a little, but this is a, a red herring fallacy. <laughs> Go shout out to the episode on fallacies, the first, the first episode. And B, there is a big difference scientifically between parts of a human being that are like alive and a human embryo and a f- or fetus that is an actual human being like we just discussed. So if someone does try to bring that up, you can, yeah, certainly acknowledge that the sperm and the ovum are alive, but they are not a human life. When they come together, that is when a human life is first created, according to science. And this isn't even, like, that is obviously a biblical view, but just on science alone for this first part, a fertilized, a fertilized, like a zygote, is a real human being. So now I want to get into some common abortion arguments and questions that people have when considering the abortion debate. So the first and one of the most common ones I have heard and experienced, and I honestly, it took me a long time to be articulate enough to answer this in a way that made sense. So this is a tough one. I feel like a lot of people struggle with explaining, but it is if the baby is not is in the mother and is taking up her body, shouldn't she have the right to dispose of it? So it's not necessarily saying the baby's alive or not, it's saying the mother has to put her resources towards keeping this baby alive and the baby is taking those resources. So almost isn't, they're comparing a baby to almost a parasite. And since people are and should be getting rid of parasites, shouldn't a mother have the right to get rid of her own baby? And to this, I say, number one, think about a toddler. A toddler requires resources from his or her parents, but in a different way. If a parent ever decides that their child is requiring too much of them or sucking too much of their resources, is it morally justifiable to kill it? And the answer to that is, of course, no. (laughs) No, I hope no one would think that that would be a morally justifiable reason to kill someone else because they're taking resources. But there is a difference that could be brought down to survival. For example, a toddler could physically survive in another environment. It could survive in a foster care system. But an embryo might not necessarily be able to do so. So in this situation, I think that people understand that a baby, or they usually try to understand a baby is an individual. But I think being dependent on someone does not give you the right to kill them. And that goes back to that argument. Just because someone is dependable on someone doesn't give you the right to kill them. Though there might be dependability in different ways, like a grandparent could be dependable on an assistant living facility. It doesn't give you the right to kill someone else, and thinking that dependability gives you the right to kill someone else would lead 
a lot of gray area in in all other areas of life where people are dependent on other people. So I don't think dependability is a valid argument because you could just as easily say, oh, this toddler is too dependent on me. I feel like I can't handle the responsibility. And also another thing to take into consideration is um, like people make a choice. It's not like a baby just gets into a mother's body except in cases of rape. Cases of rape and rape is a very grave, grave matter and not something that I ever want to take lightly or treat lightly. But in other cases than rape, people choose to have sex. We are not animals. We are not like controlled and governed by our impulses. Yes, we have biological impulses, but we are certainly capable of controlling those impulses. If you're not ready to be a mother, do not have sex. Birth control is not 100% effective. And I feel like that's something many people don't understand. They're like, oh, but I'm not ready to have a child. Then you need to consider like what led you to have a child in the first place. If you're not ready to have a child, having sex is not something you should be doing. And I think that we need to educate women on this too because a lot of people do believe that birth control is 100% effective and it is certainly not effective enough to prevent pregnancy 100% of the time. And women need to be educated in these situations. Education is power and women are not being educated. So that's kind of another common argument. The next is um, kind of the heartbeat argument for abortion. And I actually think that this is a rather problematic one. Like some people define life as starting when the heartbeat starts. But again, I think that is like a part of development, but it's not exactly as strong of a case for when human life begins, which I personally believe and have shown that most scientists believe life begins at conception. But the heartbeat, I know, for example, Texas recently passed the heartbeat law, which is good because it does limit abortion. But a heartbeat isn't necessarily something in the development of a fetus or embryo that defines its life. Like, Throughout the process of pregnancy, nine months, that child is evolving and using certain things like, oh, once they have toes, they're a human life. Once they have a heartbeat, it's a human life. It's not necessarily morally or scientifically correct. And the heartbeat, like, if the living fetus is a human, he or she is still a human life. Life is objective, and I think the existence or non-existence of which can be demonstrated by science, which starts says that it starts at conception. And a heartbeat, while it is important, a lot of the times at six weeks, they're not necessarily a, the cardiovascular system has not fully functioned so it's heartbeats supposedly i'm doing air quotations are electrical impulses of the body so it's not necessarily a heartbeat and using a heartbeat to determine whether a child is or isn't alive is not as medically accurate as saying life begins at conception and the next is kind of the argument of viability and there was this man named David Orentlicker, who is a medical professor, and he wrote a post for the Harvard Law School blog saying that if a fetus needs its mother's body to exist prior to viability, then it means the woman is essentially lending her body to allow the fetus to survive. And this argument says it infringes on the woman's right to her own body. 
And we already kind of talked about this, but like we said before, viability is not something, and dependency and viability is not something that can necessarily determine a human life or not. Just because someone is in a different place of their journey towards adulthood and being a fully developed human doesn't mean they're not a fully developed human. A two-year-old's brain is different than a 15-year-old's brain. That doesn't mean a two-year-old is any less human than a 15-year-old. So a lot of these arguments we can relate back to human development and when we draw the line. And I think that that's something that I found really not easy but helpful in debating abortion is there's a lot of cases where you can compare the development status of a baby to a two-year-old and that of a two-year-old to someone older because of course they're not going to be the same state of development yet that makes them no more or less human we believe that from the beginning of life conception the most clearly definable point a human is a human no matter what traits they do or do not have yet and I think that uh, another thing about the viability debate is location. Like, just because someone is in a different location, for example, in the womb, versus whether they are out, that shouldn't decide their right to life or not. And there's something that I find very unsatisfactory about those rights being determined simply where a child is or what sort of development it's at. So I have three kind of questions that I think will fi- that will be helpful to you guys when debating. So number one, and I'm, if you want to write these down, you can, but I think that they're very crucial. So ask these are questions to ask someone when debating. And when, when I think you're having this topic, try and be open and try not to attack other people as touchy as this subject is and as important it is as it is i know it can be easy to get heated and think about like why why would you think that it's ever okay to take someone's life like that is never morally acceptable to me and that's something i find my i myself have gotten into like i've just gotten so sad and stressed and worried that i lose focus and that can be really detrimental to having a conversation about this and quite possibly talking to someone and seeing where your views are different and seeing why they have these views about abortion. So the three questions are, does someone's location decide their right to life? Ask them that question. Two, does does someone's ability to survive successfully and independently decide their right to life? Three, does someone's motor skills and brain development and body development decide their right to life? So these three questions are basically all answerable if you are, um, if you believe that life begins at conception because your view throughout will be consistent in applying it to older people, toddlers, children, embryos, even the earliest stages of development. These are all consistent across the board, which is something that views that do not hold that life begins at conception cannot do in this. They cannot be consistent in this argument. So, kind of a, one more common a quest. This is like the last, like one more kind of common thing. Sorry, <laughs> I'm mix, mixing up my words. And 
So this is like the last question. Is abortion ever morally justifiable? And there's a couple of ways to describe this and ways that I have had to kind of look into and research because a lot of this I didn't know before coming to this podcast, asking people questions to get information for this podcast. And I think that first off, very right off the bat, and so it's important to say that any and all abortion procedures whose direct purpose is to destroy a embryo or fetus is not okay and is gravely, gravely immoral. Human life needs to be respected from the, and protected from the moment of conception. So in this argument, if the, mother, if the mother's life is in danger, can abortion ever be okay? And this is a tough, tough question. But first, I think it's very important to note that the former U.S. Surgeon General C. Everett Koop famously stated, In my 36 years of pediatric surgery, I have never known of one instance where the child had to be aborted to save the life of the mother. If toward the end of the pregnancy, complications arise that threaten the mother's health, her obstetrician will either induce labor or perform a cesarean C-section. A cesarean section. His intention is to save the life of both the mother and the baby. The baby's life is never willfully destroyed because the mother's life is in danger. So this, the general surgeon is saying that he in his 36 years of medical practicing has never had a case where they need to kill the baby to save the mother. So first off, I want to point out this is not a common case. It doesn't happen very often where a mother's life is so much in danger that her child needs to be aborted. However, there are very, very rare cases where this could happen, like for example in the case of an ectopic pregnancy where a pregnancy attaches to the fallopian tubes instead of the uterus and it could cause a rupturing and that cause, could cause internal bleeding for the mother. So in this case, the principle of double effect is often what is considered in Christian theology and in moral theology appropriate and the right thing to do. So I'm going to do my best to explain this, but this is kind of a hard topic to grasp. So in the principle of double effect, the first question is the question of intention. So one can never intend the evil effect. So you cannot intend abortion. One's intention must be only the good effect. The evil effect must be a regrettable byproduct. So in this case of an ectopic pregnancy, the effect would be not to abort the child, but to not allow the uterus to rupture. And this gets into some sketchy stuff, I think, for me personally, just because you need to be absolutely certain of the intention of the effect, and that's hard to do, which is why it's good that this is not a common thing that happens. So the second is the question of causality. So St. Thomas Aquinas, who we talked about a little before in previous episodes, articulated the principle that the end does not justify the means. And this holds true in this situation. So one may never do evil hoping that good may come of it. A bad effect may be the consequence of a morally good effect, or it may occur simultaneously along with it, but the anticipated good must never be the result of evil actions. Such acts are never morally licit. 
so this makes it even more difficult i think in this debate because well i think number one it's important to say you are not directly having an abortion you're simply removing a part of the fallopian tube which in turn causes the abortion but the end does not justify the means applying this is rather difficult so i will just address the third question and then kind of go through it all together so the third question is of comparable gravity so is the good that's being done proportional to the evil consequences of the action so in order to justify the taking of an action it must be because some actions like this action removing a part of the fallopian tubes would have both a good and an evil outcome and the gravity of the two must be weighed against each other and the catechism of the catholic church states in relation to this circumstances of themselves cannot change the moral quality of acts themselves they can make neither good nor right an action that is in itself evil still end quote still these actions can contribute to increasing or diminishing the moral good of an act like in this case So let's go through the entire thing and apply it to the case of an ectopic pregnancy. So the intention of a doctor is to perform a good to save the mother's life by removing the uterus. The evil effect of this act is causing the death of a baby. That is not a desired act though. The intention is to simply remove the uterus so that it does not rupture. It is a very sad, or the part of the fallopian tube, it is a very sad and unfortunate result of the good act that the baby will die. So two, the evil effect does not cause the good result. So in this case, the doctor is removing a part of the fallopian tube that is going to kill the mother, not necessarily performing an abortion. The baby will die after this fallopian tube that it is attached to comes out, but the purpose of this is not to kill the child. And three, two very grave matters must be weighed against each other. Saving one person is better than allowing both to die through inaction, even though it means the death of one. So if this is continued and allowed to continue, oftentimes both the baby and the mother will die. So in this case, it is not a case of if the baby may or may not die. It is a case of in ectopic pregnancies, both the baby and the mother will die. That is like 90, there's a very high statistic that both will die. And so these matters must be weighed against each other and it is never an easy decision. And sometimes um, that, that that's the mother will choose to not get treatment just because she does not want to even risk the death of the baby but it's a very personal and important decision so when looking at whether something is morally right or not you can apply these three the the question of intention causality and the comparable gravity and the double effect and the double effect is not easy that's why it's not something that's applied very often one because it's not common for a mother's life and a baby's life for to be so endangered that action like this needs to take place and so it's in no means an easy thing to describe but that is one thing that i i found interesting in learning about and i think helpful 
in the argument as a whole. So that kind of sums up all of the main points about argument in abortion. And I hope that this episode was informative. <laughs> I'm continuing not to say enjoyable because I don't think that these episodes, I'm not making them to be enjoyable. This topic is not enjoyable to talk about. Talking about killing people generally isn't enjoyable, but I hope that they are informative. And I will end us in a Bible verse. Also next week, the topic is going to be way, way lighter. We're going to be talking about college, preparation, all that fun, exciting stuff. So definitely after <laughs> these three heavy episodes, we're going to have a lot of light, chill, fun, not so grave, a lot more scholarly episodes coming up. And I actually have been getting a lot of good ideas for episodes. So in the coming months, we're going to have a lot of cool new content. But I'll end us in a Bible verse, and then I actually have to go to class, like, right after this. So it was perfect timing. So, this is Jeremiah 1.5. Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I set you apart. And I think that's a beautiful verse in considering our life, when life begins, and just how much God knows us and loves us and forms us before we are even, even in our parents' wombs, our souls are with him. And that's just a beautiful, a beautiful end note. Anyways, I will see you all next week and I hope you all have a great week. Thank you for listening to this episode of Wednesdays with Winnie. I would really appreciate it if you could leave a review on whatever platform you listen to the podcast on just to let me know how I'm doing. Anyways, God bless and see you next Wednesday.